Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. And welcome to this version of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. And it gives me a great, uh, great delight this this week because it is a year since this podcast first uh, first launched, and over that time we've had some really interesting um, interviews, some really interesting insights into different organisations and different people. But we haven't actually dived into any tools yet. So this for this episode, I'm really delighted to welcome uh, Matt Jackson. Uh, Matt is the Embedded Graphics Technical Product Manager at Presagis. Now I've got to admit here that. Um, Matt is not a not a new person to me. I've known Matt for uh, quite a long period of time. In fact, as long as I've been in uh, set set up K Sharp in my own business, and in fact, even before that. So I've known Matt for a very long time. So welcome, Matt, and thank you very much for joining me today. Well, thank you very much, Barry, for the invite. So what I want to talk to you about, Matt, is you're you're not a human factors practitioner in your own right, but you have had to put up with us for an awfully long time, um, <laughs> and you're really about developing. Um, tools that, that we can use and specifically around uh, developing HCI, HMI, so the, all the human interfaces that we see on on screens of and you, you deal with some quite significant uh, significant platform forms for like air and, and things like that. So if it's okay with you, we really want to delve into um, the nitty gritty of how you develop tools for us as HF practitioners. Um, but before that, you've got quite a cool title, um, Embedded Graphics Technical Product Manager, what is it? What, what do you actually do now? That, that's a great question. I actually get asked this sometimes internally because um, my, my role is an interesting one. The word embedded graphics um, gets used a lot, as you say. Um, we provide tools that allow people to build HMIs or user interfaces that get deployed. So it's about actually how do you actually make one of these things? Um, the word technical got added in because, as, as you mentioned, Barry, uh, my background is actually working with HF practitioners and building systems. So I've spent the past 22 years building aircraft, cars, tanks, display systems that go into those actually as a developer, as a software, hardware, and also very much involved with the human factors teams and supporting them or even giving input and advice to them and kind of suggestions and things like that. So my role, um, because we're a tools company, is actually guiding the development team who writes the tool. And it comes from the perspective of how do our users work with it? Being a user myself, guiding them through that challenge of um, they don't uh, this type of user doesn't want to type one zero one 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 zero zero one 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 zero zero to see a pretty picture on the screen they'd, they'd like <laughs> to draw it and yeah. not they don't actually care what's going on underneath all the way down to our safety side and testing side of the for the certification of going well actually these guys need to see these results so my role is to try and guide the development team pick the features that we need that users are wanting or are in the future up and coming um, for new ideas and new practices of doing it pick and choose in a priority order then guide the team and evaluate how they develop it give them advice give them requirements and then review what they're building. 
-hmm. uh, and then go out and support it. And that role means talking to the users a lot um, and saying, what do you like? What do you not like? Where are the problems? Uh, but also using it myself um, still. Um, so I have a, an interesting role. And as I said, it's very much focused on making sure the tool does what users want it to do or need it to do. Um, I don't have to get involved in some of the marketing side that sometimes product managers, it's a, a role that was created in some ways to make sure the tools do what the industry needs um, rather than uh, <laughs> the kind of, That's hey, here's, here's how the best way to make the cash. Someone else can worry about the money bit. <laughs> Yes, so so yeah, I mean, in in essence, you're doing a, a I guess a stakeholder stakeholder management role um, in that as as a human factors process would do for human factors practitioners in Correct. the development yeah. of human factors tools. It's yeah, a, exactly. I'm taking actually a lot of information I've learned over the years working with human factors practitioners and applying it to the tool development um, and trying to take those skills that hopefully I've picked up from people I've worked with so uh, yeah, and I, applying I, I, it. I, I, Applying human factors tools and technique, it'll never catch on. I tell you. No. no. Um, so, but obviously, I mean, that is a hugely fascinating role. And but you've been involved in this for for quite a while, haven't you? So, how did you actually get into it in the first place? Well, it's as you say, it's an interesting one. How did I even get into the human factors or the kind of MMI type things, which is really my focus? Um, I'm no expert on kind of other things in human factors, but I'm much more on the user interface. Um, effectively. I kind of moved into it almost at the beginning by accident. I started off um, doing rapid prototyping for the Tornado aircraft. Uh, one of my first jobs out of university, I came along as a systems engineer um, working on the Tornado aircraft and they were rapid prototyping some new display formats for an upgrade. Yeah. And we were working with the pilots and the navigators and refining what the displays were. So my job was to quickly develop the code because at that time it was in pure code. I was writing hand code on a Silicon Graphics workstation and the cool. pilot would come in the next day and they go, oh yeah, but we can't see this. And you would assess them and then make a change and go back and it was the first I was working with my manager and the team leads were taking this on board to develop the requirements that were going to go into the aircraft so I kind of very much enjoyed that and went this is really interesting because it shows a small change the difference it makes to an end user um, in a critical situation so I kind of started off that's where I got into the human factors side of thing um on there and it's kind of carried on from there uh prior to that it was a, a very different career path so <laughs> sounds like a, a we, we should move on um but um but no i mean obviously you you've had that um it, you don't get many people who stayed with the same company for a significant period of time anymore and you've you've now been with what presages for about 13 years so uh yeah presages came about uh ooh, I'm trying to think it was uh i joined the original company back in 98 so it's now 20 years uh wow yes which was actually of course, you, virtual you evolved, prototypes you? Yeah. yeah so it's an interesting one i was actually employee number two in the uk wow. um when the virtual prototypes and actually virtual prototypes was set up by uh HMI development engineer in Canada. He was actually building displays for the Canadians uh, and hand coding them. 
And he said, there's got to be a better way of doing this because it takes too long doing this. And he came up with the tool called VAPS. So he was actually the founder of the company. And I joined at that point um, when they were kind of growing outside of Canada and wanted to do more stuff worldwide um, in that respect. But uh, I've been with the kind of some people call it the VAPS company for nearly 20 years. But as you say, it's unusual to stay with one. But in that time, I would say, yes, I've worked for them. I've used the software tools, but I've actually worked for multiple companies because a lot of the time I've actually been working on programs for customers or clients. Yeah. So it's where you and I met originally. Barry is actually working on an aircraft program together. So yeah, um, and I was, was uh... I was based there for oh, nearly two years. Um, so just a very strange feeling that uh, you work for a company but paid by a different one. <laughs> yes, it's, it's almost like um, like being a, a, well, it is being a consultant, isn't it? As, as, it is, yeah. And having the, the advantages of that, but also having the advantages of um, being, able to, being able to work with your own company and develop new tools and stuff as well. And it's fascinating. Exactly, yeah. You are listening to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. Obviously, recently, you, you might not, you might have noticed we've been in sort of, there's been a bit, this lockdown and pandemic thing going on this COVID-19 I don't know if you've seen the news um it, it, it's obviously had a massive impact on how we all do all do our job um but you've because of the the um, international nature of your business you've been doing a fair bit of work working remotely already um so how has it affected you having to work from home yeah as you say uh, I do a fair bit of working remotely anyway because a lot of my work is nomadic our head office is in Montreal and most of my development team is in Montreal so a lot of my work is remote reviews with the engineers and the development team and things like that so we've done that but we always had um, face-to-face meetings or reviews every kind of eight weeks or ten weeks Um, and obviously that stopped so uh, that, that's been interesting. Um, but also working with the customers, um, a lot of stuff is face to face when you're in the middle of a program because I still practice what I use um, and use yeah. the tools. Um, and it's interesting, as I said, I've been nomadic and remote from the head office for a number of years. We have an office in the UK. Um, but basically, for many things, it's it's situation normal for me because I have a, a, a well set up environment where I work from home when I'm not traveling. So that's good. Ergonomically, I've got all the tools I need here. I didn't have to go out and buy anything, whereas lots of people have had to readjust their home life or a space. I've always had that um, from the beginning because it was part of the role that you needed somewhere to work and do that. The interesting challenge and it comes very much down to kind of the human factors bit. Tools have come along, so Teams and Zoom and all these things, great for communicating and helping. And they've actually been great. We've been using kind of uh, voice over IP and kind of whiteboarding for a number of years in the company, which is great for doing certain types of reviews. But what's more challenging, and I, found, I think as the time has gone on, 
with the restrictions on movement and actually being able to physically go somewhere. I think that's the bit that's been more challenging as it's actually been harder to explain or review certain aspects that you see in a user interface. So a good example is I've got a lovely 23 inch monitor in front of me. Well, that's great. And it's a touch screen. We do a lot of touch screen work. That's wonderful. But actually, I'm not deploying touch screens on a 23 inch monitor. I'm doing it on a, a 10 by 4 or 6 by 4 or different formats on there. And a user interface I've developed that's easy to touch something or drag something or physically read on a big screen doesn't work so well on a small screen. So when you're trying to review that, or you're finding that there's issues in performance because of a certain part of hardware that you think it all looks good but actually when you see it run on the physical system you've got glitches which some people might accept as a software engineer you go oh it's software the timing or <laughs> that's just the way hardware yeah. is but actually from a user perspective or a pilot or a, a driver it's unacceptable uh, I, I had one recently where we we're doing streaming video and fortunately, I've actually got a piece of hardware that's similar to the one that the customer was using, and they had video glitches. Mm -hmm. And it was a case of, ah, I can actually replicate that, and I know that that's a serious problem. It's like, just because you've dropped a frame here and there doesn't mean anything to some people, but actually, that's fine in a web conference, but if I'm relying on that data to make a critical decision, it's a problem. So being able to not see some of the final systems face to face yeah, is yeah. a problem. Um, and we faced this in the past. We've tried to come up with methods in the past to do that, like cameras pointing at screens and stuff. But there is this tangible that the human in the loop problem there of a camera might not pick it up because of timing and things like that. And we've had cameras pointing at screens on customer sites before and you don't pick it up and five minutes on site, you see it. And you go, yeah. oh, that's obvious. Uh, that's not acceptable. That's the thing. And I think that's the challenge as time goes on. That's the one that's getting more tricky now is certain specific problems, trying to address them or resolve them or understand them, uh, yeah. yes. not being able to get your hands on them. I think that's the challenge I'm finding it's as almost time in, goes on. I guess in many ways, it's trying to understand almost the, the nonverbal communication that you get from, yeah, you, an operator might be able to use something, but you can tell they're uncomfortable using it. They may be searching That's around, it. trying to, and yeah, we're doing a similar thing where we try, I'm trying to understand how to do uh, usability assessments of, of end product um, online at the moment. And like I say, you can get so far, but there's nothing, I still don't think anything beats being in the room and getting effectively down and dirty with with uh, with your end users and saying, is this what you want? Is this, yeah. and you, you get that full range of experience, can't you? As I say, it's the non-verbal um, one that's the challenge of when see someone's in front of it or using it, or even I look at a lot of the technical, you don't see it. The technology isn't there. It's not, mm. you don't get that full experience to get that feedback. Um, no. And it just takes longer. We we get there. I just know it's starting to take a little bit longer to get some of those feedback loops yes. kind of refined. And you have to go through a few more of those cycles of going, oh, is this what you meant? No. Oh, is this what you meant? And you and go many, through that. And in many ways, because the, the, the hard bit in that is that the user doesn't necessarily know what the problem is because um, they don't have the experience of doing that. They know that something's not right, 
but they can't articulate it because they don't know what it is that's wrong in order to make it meaningful. So that's why you have to be in a room and say, actually, I, I've seen this problem. I, I know what your problem is. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I absolutely sympathize with that. Yeah. Um, so let's stop talking about you um, for, <laughs> for a bit. Um, as interesting as you are, but it's the the tools that you're creating. Um, obviously, there, there is a suite of tools there. Um, but what do you... For the for the layperson who's not heard of Presages, who's not heard of Vamps, um, and and its its successors, um, what is it? What what is it, what is it you're actually doing? Yeah, so that's a, a good one. So, Presages as a company makes tools to help people build things. So um, that could mean anything. We're not building hammers and kind of chainsaws <laughs> and and things like that. Um, we're focused very much and the company is split. We have two parts of the company. One is a simulation part that allows people to build synthetic environments or um, and a lot of the history of actually why those tools came about was to support the MA, MMI, HMI world was actually stimulation to stimulate in a, a realistic way um, what a user is doing. Obviously, you can build a simulator at the end to train people. Um, so we have two parts. One is the simulation side, and then the other side is user interface development, which is the area I mainly focus on myself. And under that, um, as I joke and make the comment, is um, we're often referred to as the VAPS company because mm -hmm. that's the one that everyone knows about because it's it's been widely used on many, many platforms. And VAPS is effectively a family of products now because under that, um, VAPS was the first tool that kind of came along in the HMI world for the company for us yeah. and it stood it actually had a name um, I was lucky I actually met the founder and I spent time with the the kind of guy who invented it all and he was a very clever guy um, and he was building displays and it stood for virtual avionics prototyping system he needed a quicker oh. way quicker way of building the displays to show people yeah um, and what's happened is it's grown into a family. It was a desktop tool that allowed you to visualize your ideas and animate them to show people, is this what you need? So very much a human factors type of tool. Yeah. And it would save out design models, but you couldn't really do much with them. And what's happened over the history of the company, we've added to that and the, the family has grown. So VAPS is the kind of base one. And then we added code generation. And the code generation was great because you could give people executables on your desktop PC. And we said, hang on, we people want to put this into their real product. Well, we'll put embedded code generation in there. Then certification comes along and go, hey, I want to fly this and make it sure it's safe and whatever. So we've added products around that that do certification. So the VAPS QCG was the first COTS tool that actually could do qualified code generation for an HMI. So right. DO178B, it was, there were tools out there from vendors that made hardware that allowed you to do it. So we, I make a very big distinction. This is a commercial off the shelf. You could just go down and buy and make it work and deploy it on anything. So VAPS is the key one under that. And that's the first generation. But VAPS XT is the current generation of tools that we talk about now. And what it does is, it allows you to draw your design, tell it how you want to animate. So I kind of call it a bit like glorified PowerPoint. Um, you, you draw the pictures, you tell it how it's going to work, tell it where it's going to get data from. 
and you can try it out in the editor and if you're happy with it it will generate code that you can run on your desktop pc on your android kind of phone or your ios tablet or on a linux system and you can take that same design and put that into your final system and that's the kind of uniqueness of what the vaps world is all about is start with the design and refine it and improve it and take it from the desktop world of assessments all the way through to flying or driving this thing confidently knowing that nothing's been changed along the way it's it is the model that you started with um, on there so vaps xt is the main one and everything else fits around it this podcast is supported by k sharp the human science research and human factors consultancy If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk. So just to be clear then, because obviously in recent years there's been an explosion of, you know, tools and that will help that'll help you do um, visual design of user interfaces and apps uh, yeah. for your phone and that. That's not your bag. You're talking about stuff that you can actually deploy straight onto a platform that is like like an aircraft or a car or so so you it's an embedded system at that point, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's the uniqueness. And there's some really good tools out there, as you say, that if you want to just do a phone app or something like that, there's some great tools um, and some an explosion of tools out there to build a UI for that purpose. Um, and yeah, we do similar things, but the difference is, is we can also take that and deploy it into a critical system. And we have evidence and tests and requirements that prove that it works in that environment. And it's platform agnostic. If we want to, we can run on an iPhone, but if we want to take that same design, we can go and run that on your kind of military aircraft or commercial aircraft as well. And it, we don't mind what that platform is. And we work mm. in the world of critical safety systems as well. And that's one of the unique things. Some people never go there. They they just use it for the prototyping and then they pass it on and those models get shared. Yeah. Uh, but the big benefit of the tools is if you want to go and deploy it, it supports that pro- process and that's the big thing really um, and that's where it's where it's unique in many so, ways so as you said you've you've been involved in the development of this tool or this 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 family of tools now for for a good chunk of years shall we say yeah um, but but you are still very much in that in that middle space aren't you you've got you've got your engine your, your software engineers on one hand who are wanting to develop code then you've got people like me saying but Matt, i wanted to do this that and the other what's it like trying to be almost been in the middle of that sandwich of of the demands on both sides it's that that the perfect kind of question there because it is challenging because it's trying to steer that course of balance because at the end of the day when you make something you have to deploy it so you sometimes you have to restrict the user and go you want to do that but it's just not possible seriously the hardware and the systems if you want to fly or drive that the 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 stuff isn't there the software or the hardware can't do that so there's a little bit of balancing so you're kind of pulling back a little bit some of the dreams but not restricting it too much and as that's one of my things is you can't restrict it because that the dream today is reality tomorrow 
um, is because things will evolve. It will support these things eventually. So it's that balance. And yet we'll have software engineers who want to be precise and they don't want, as they call it, fluffy or kind of just imprecise. They want it. Uh, <laughs> yes. One plus one equals two, and it must do this. And I want a, a function API that I can program so I can sequence this on my final hardware. And they want that sort of thing. Um, but that's the balancing act. So what we do is actually take a balance. When we do a product release, we put features in that we know will happen in the future to support new ideas and new concepts. Uh, to try and make life easy. But at the same time, we're also putting the functionality behind it. So there's a little bit of a lead and a lag, if you see what I mean, when yeah. you come to the product release. But you're always balancing it. It's saying people want to design this. We have to give them the capabilities of easily designing this without having to be a software developer. Yeah. And at the same time, the software developer has got specific requirements that we're balancing there as well. So we're putting in APIs or test results or evidence to do that. So we kind of try and do a balance as we move forward, because if you focus too much on the software guys, you'll never get any good new designs. You'll be stuck in the 1980s. Um, yes. and vice versa sort of thing. If you do all the new fancy stuff, you'll never be able to deploy it. Um, we've got a great example of that where we did um, touch gestures, where right. yeah. we added the functionality, and we've actually done it over the past five years, where gestures are coming a big thing, and we actually put a whole load of stuff in for the prototyping people. We allowed you to test it on your PCs, we could even run it on embedded, but we couldn't certify it right. um, because we we needed the requirements to settle down of the usage to get that to be ready. Now we certify it. So we've kind of brought a feature in that makes it easy to people put gestures into their design. Um, and when they've got to the point where they now want to deploy it in an aircraft or a plane, a car or a helicopter, they can because we can test and certify all of that and prove it. Um, and again, it's agnostic from the operating system and the hardware and things like that, which is great. Um, but it's one of those ones where you balance a feature and you go, we need it. We know we need it. We're going to be doing human factors evaluations of how it's used. And then that will define the final requirement of how we certify it as well, because we have okay. to have firm requirements at that point. So it's a nice evolution and it matches up probably some of the human factors work people do is refining the requirement before it goes into the final. So we're doing the same on the tool. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see that, I guess, there's no reason why you wouldn't expect it, but it's quite nice to hear that the um, you know, effectively good good human factors methods are being applied to the the tools and techniques that it is that we that we ourselves would use. So no, that, but, I could, but you can also, see how you're managing that positive almost it's, it's almost a positive tension isn't it between you know what people and me are stamping my foot for and demanding and and the out of the possible and um and being able to actually make it worthwhile in the grand scheme of things exactly so, yeah so you've always you've you've um teased us i think with quite a few different places where you've deployed some of these things like you talk about air platform you talk about uh, being able to drive these displays and things like that have you got any sort of either projects or platforms that you've had you've got to work with that you could share with us 
Yeah, that's a good one. So it is interesting because over the years it's evolved who's used our tools and, and where they've been deployed. And some of them are public. We we do a lot of military work. Unfortunately, most of that we can't talk about, which is a real shame. <laughs> yes. Because um, actually some of the fun, most fun stuff uh, is the most recent, which means it's the most classified. And even yeah. in the commercial world as well, we do a lot in the commercial aerospace we're just not allowed to talk about because it's very sensitive because if a competitor found out and yeah things like that but actually there are certain ones we're allowed to talk about and we've been involved with and things like that so um you and i met actually working on harrier so we did a we lot did, of work on that and that that's public knowledge as well people knew there was press releases and things like that on the actual displays for the harrier before it was um lost from this country unfortunately uh which is a real real shame but i got to work on several programs a lot in the uk but i've done a lot in um the kind of uk aerospace so typhoon is another example where i did a lot of work with the team at the beginning with concepts and then through um, the deployment and I've actually gone through the whole life cycle from some of the early designs all the way through to the hardware so I even worked with the hardware teams that made it and optimizing so I've seen the whole way through on Typhoon and again with um, more recently uh, with the Merlin helicopter as well in right. the UK um, and that was a great one because that actually was a first for many things touchscreen displays in the cockpit use of ARINC 661 um, to give the kind of update speeds of um, putting new content in the uh, helicopter fast and things like that. So those are ones that publicly we can talk about. I spent a huge amount of time in Germany working on cars, which uh, unfortunately cars, some of the human factors on that, they've accelerated to gadget world a little too much rather than accelerated too far. But I did a lot of work on um, some stuff with Mercedes. Again, public knowledge. We have lots mm. of press releases about work on that so i got involved on in actually developing features that appeared in these aircraft cars things like that and and there are military land vehicles as well again unfortunately those ones i can't talk about um, yes. i don't have permission yeah. to do but as you can see it's quite varied if you are a human factors practitioner or in a related discipline and are not already a member, then do look up the Chartered Institute of Ergonomics and Human Factors. They are the professional institution for all human factors practitioners. Find them at www.ergonomics.org.uk. You threw us a bit a small curveball there. You mentioned Daring 661. Um, do you, could you tell us a little bit more about what, what that is? Yeah, ARINC 661 is an interesting one. I got in, started getting involved in ARINC 661 back in about 2008, 2009. And it's a, it was a, it's a, I say it was, it is a standard to try and standardize the way um, graphics are interacted with um, on a platform. So there's a set of rules. Um, I would personally say it's very much more from the systems engineering side, yeah. um, but it does impact the human factors side of things and various bits. But it basically, it defines a, a kind of industry standard way of writing a page layout of where your items on the screen will appear. 
and it standardizes the messaging format for any system to go and talk to that screen and get data back from the screen. So in many ways, I kind of simplify it for those who are more technical, like X windows, you can have an X window and yeah. uh, widgets and, and things like that. It's a lot more to that because actually it specifies about a hundred, they call them widgets, which are items that somebody can lay out on a screen and interact with uh, in a standardized way. What it doesn't do is say what it looks like. Um, so from a human factors practitioner, it's one of my, it's an interesting challenge on there is I can have a push button, but I don't know what it looks like. I don't right. know what yeah. color it looks like. I don't know what font it has. I don't know if it highlights when my cursor goes over it or, or things like that. What it does is it gives you that standard approach and it does work well. And it actually came from the commercial aerospace world. It was kind of came about first used on the Airbus A380 and it allowed them to work with supply chain and standardize model interchange on there. So 661 is there more recently and I, I can kind of give you the hot news on this one. There is a new part of the standard that was ratified and released in August 2020 this year, mm -hmm. uh, which actually starts to address some of the human factors of what does it look like? How does it feel? What's the behavior of these items on the screen? Well, that's uh, exciting. It is exciting. It's a, a new new thing and it's more the looking of it. So the drawing and the behavioral model of parts of the user interface. Um, but the core ARINC 661 is all about page layout and how the systems talk to it uh, okay. on there. So the other thing that you mentioned as well, which I guess if people have been involved in developing HCI for you know web or apps or stuff like that might not be aware of is is this idea of, of safety critical software um, or I guess mission critical software as well is a, yes. a similar phrasing. What does that actually mean to the layperson? Well, that's that that's exactly and that's what what does it actually mean and safety critical and certification are kind of an interesting set of things is certification and I, I say this because lots of people think it's really hard and really difficult well no certification certifying my software could be really easy if i say i've got a requirement i want a red box on the screen well that's pretty easy to code um, and actually test and prove um, so the certification of it is the is actually proving that you met a requirement um, it did the requirement and you can prove the requirement and all the code is done in a particular way to ensure that it wouldn't make a mistake. So there's lots and lots of tests and there's lots and lots of guidance and there's lots of independent checks on your code. So we, we do this ourselves is our code. We have one person write a requirement, the other one review the requirement, someone else code it from the requirement, independent test that it did what the requirement said and and then you collect all your evidence and say that's great. Safety is an interesting one because I've got a system and that's where there's a blur between certification and, and safety just because I've certified the software doesn't mean it's right. Um, if the requirement was wrong as I said a red box that's a pretty useless requirement if I need to tell a pilot um, the an engine's on fire and all my requirements says a red box appears on the screen and you go okay when does it appear 
yeah. when the landing gear goes down, when the engine goes on. So basically, I show a red box all the time. That's not a very safe system, is it? Yes. <laughs> that that's not there. And safe has a lot of connotations of what does a safe safety system mean and what is safe um, because you may train a user to actually make the system safe it might not be very good for the man in the street but for a trained operator it's it's safe because they know the procedure to follow um, so there is a bit of a gray area when it comes to pure safety yeah. um, on there but certification there are guidelines there are rules that you have to have independence, you have to prove that you did what you said you were going to do, you've tested it independently. It's all about ensuring the quality of that code isn't wrong and it always does the same thing. Um, as I said, yeah. if the requirement was wrong, it doesn't mean it's a good piece of software. So it's yeah. uh, fitness for purpose and all this sort of thing. It's uh, um, certification's great. I can certify software, but it still has to do something useful. Um, and that's when you start analyzing the requirements of the safety case and things. Okay. Now, I think that's really cool because I think there's lots of people out there who hear these sort of things. It, it almost seems like a bit of a black art. Um, yeah. But actually, as you say, if, if if you've got all your processes laid out there about how it's done, it's it's not necessarily a black art. It's just, it's just um, it, it is quite a skilled job. Um, yeah. But it is a it is a process driven job as well. If you are new to human factors and ergonomics, you might be wondering exactly what it is. In a nutshell, human factors is the study of how humans behave physically and psychologically in relation to particular environments, products, or services. As you will no doubt realize, that means human factors practitioners can add value to almost any project because they all involve people. The trick is getting that value as early in the project as you can because it ends up being much cheaper than fixing the issues later on. So if I've got something out there that I'm, 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 I don't know what tool I'm going to use, um, I've got maybe a requirement, how do I know whether VAPS-XT or the, something in the VAPS-XT family is the, is the right thing for me to use or not? So that that's the interesting one. As I said, we prefer people who actually use the tool that they need it because we'll actually even say go and use a, a web UI or something. If you're not planning to deploy it in a driving, moving system, um, um, yeah, go, go use something. If you've got no safety case, if you've got no certification, we're not necessarily the tool per se. However, if I'm building a system and I think I want to put it onto an aircraft or onto an embedded system in a car or something driving or uh, a ground system for a UAV or something like that, I don't know what hardware I'm going to use. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, VAPS is a good tool to use because you go, I've got a requirement for user interface and I need to, eventually someone's going to use this, but I don't know what the system will be at the end. Mm -hmm. It's a good tool to start with because it may, you may end up going down and using kind of desktop systems or something like that. But if you're unsure, that's a prime one. If you already know that you've got a safety case or it is going to go on a real-time operating system or something like that, you're already halfway there because you're going, I might as well use a tool that's doing it. The other one that's a, a one that's a, a straight away is if you hear the word ARINC 661, 
It's like we were the first tool, again, a first commercial off-the-shelf tool that supported the Arinc 661 standard. So uh, it's, it's trying not to boast, but you're quite <laughs> proud. It's, it's, like, it's like your yeah. first child. You're like, we, we were there at the beginning. We actually understand it. We've deployed so many Arinc 661 systems, and we know what works and doesn't work. It's not necessarily our tools bad. But if you hear that, it's a great, great thing. If somebody starts talking Arinc 661, we can confidently go, We've had engineers who sat on the committee from nearly day one. Yeah. We understand the problems of the standard. Um, we try and support it. We also try and understand the limitations and give tools to support what you can't do. So Arring 661s are, if you hear that one, please please pick up the phone and uh, <laughs> talk, talk to us because uh, that's it. But I think really when you're talking embedded, you're going to deploy if you think maybe in the future we have a lot of customers who don't do certification but they have a requirement saying maybe in the future this platform might need to be certified we get a lot of users doing that saying yeah and they call it cert ready is somebody may pull the lever to say we want to certify it and we also get these other ones that are safety ready as well where they've got safety cases and they want software that's got a proven pedigree with all these test evidence if they needed to, but it can fit into their process because we fit into like requirements, tracing and all that sort of fun stuff you have to do. <laughs> and it's like a lot of people don't need it, but they go, we might need it. Yeah, so that's yeah. another one is like, if you might, that's a great, great chance for. So if anybody is interested in finding out more about VAP16 and things, I'll make sure that they're in the description of this episode that we'll have links to the website. And we'll also put your um, your LinkedIn details in there as well. Okay. Um, so moving forward slightly, what obviously the, the, the idea of, of different types of user interfaces is starting to balloon a bit what with things like Elon Musk wanting to drill into your head and do you know brain interface stuff which as much as I like some of the stuff he's doing absolutely terrifies me um, but we've got voice input we've got you know touch screens are technology is evolving um, what do you see what, what's your what's what's the things on the horizon that's exciting you about about interface design yeah that, that as you said I, the brain thing t terrifies me i'll be brutally honest <laughs> on that one there's no need for it as well put a couple of electrodes on your forehead uh, <laughs> uh no. um there's some very interesting things and it's one of these ones where it was possible before but the technology was not really deployable i think that's the um thing is uh, you look back to the 1980s and i i kind of look back as a child of dreaming what i could have and and yes you could if you had a supercomputer and millions and millions budget now it's got to the point where actually this is deployable that it's almost commodity sensors and things so some of the things and you're actually seeing them which is interesting not necessarily all good implementations but um we talk about touch screens touch screens to be honest they've got to be used correctly the technology has got yeah. mature um but don't use it for everything. The multi-modal inputs are the things that are really my thing at the moment is there are moments where I want one type of input technology and another. So multi-modal input, so sharing more than one input device to control the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, but if I look at technology gestures, touch gestures are moving on rapidly and the technology's there. I, I, we've been doing it for so long now, it almost seems like old hat. 
But the thing that I'm looking at now is more the motion tracking. Right. So um, uh, you can see it in the VW and BMW cars. You've got gesture controls in the car. Is it a gimmick? Partly, yes. It's slightly gimmicky because do you really need that when I've got a control on my steering wheel? Is that actually good human factors taking my hand off the steering wheel when I could just change the volume by pressing the button that's right under my thumb? Yeah, exactly, sort of thing. But actually in the cockpit, the concept of uh, a gesture or tracking movement um, to help disseminate between two decisions or actually the processing of pilot workload or things like that, because you can make more decisions based on this. So it's the kind of pilot aids and taking these inputs, maybe to control a system, maybe to actually control what you see on the screen based on where they're moving, because the actual one of the challenges is how much data you show on the screen. And actually, maybe you need to change that where the pilots moved or the hands moved or things like that. So I think position tracking, Mm-hmm. As I use the kind of generic term in there, there's actually a lot more that I'm I'm looking at and I'm actually going to be doing a webinar on some stuff about hand tracking uh, <laughs> next month uh, on there. But there there is actually position tracking, um, which I think is starting to get mature enough now, the technology to be able to use it effectively for user inputs. The eye tracking thing has always been there. Yeah. Um, around the challenge with eye tracking, I found on a, on a lot of systems I've tested, is the misuse of it because they don't take into account the working environment of forcing a person to move their eyes, but also doing something else. I, I use the example of uh, a pilot is meant to scan the screen. They're always scanning the horizon left to right, up and down. And if you start doing eye tracking, well, they're stopping doing that. And you're focusing on one thing to control it. But actually, there is reasons why it can be joined up. So kind of, again, this multimodal type input. But I think it's the positional information on there. Um, And the other one is haptics. Haptics. We did a lot of work on haptics back in the early 2000s. Haptic feedback. Um, And... We had some interesting success. We actually had some things on there, but the technology wasn't mature enough, again, for the actual physical hardware. It wasn't robust. The actual manufacturing of it for flight or driving was not good. But that feedback is now becoming more important again, is how do you do closed loop feedback with the haptics on there? So those are the kind of position tracking, haptic type thing it's getting to a point where you can use this effectively for an HMI properly, whereas before it was great and it was good sci-fi. Uh. Yeah, well, yes, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I've literally got on my desk now a, a Kickstarter haptic vest. Um, and uh, it's one of the things I'm, I'm playing with to see if a, if the commercial, yes, it's a Kickstarter, but it's still, I guess, commercial grade um, stuff is there to be, it's an entertainment vest, but is 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 there value in now in 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 it as an interface device in its own right? Um, if nothing else, it looks a bit cool with the PlayStation. 
So exactly, exactly. And I've got to admit, VR is an interesting one all round just for new user interfaces. Three, how does 3D, 2D user interface work? Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and I've done a lot of. We've been looking at that now, and it's one of those interesting ones. Is people say, "Haven't you got anything today?" And it's like we've been doing research and tests and trials on that since the day I joined the company and we've got <laughs> prototypes of that dating back to 98 and you're like wow. <laughs> and you're like guess what it still hasn't found its place necessarily yet yes it's um it's interesting isn't it it's it's how some things have been around for a while but just waiting for that level of maturity to come um it's it some things happen really quickly but some things are, are very much the slow burner yeah exactly so, brilliant well matt i have to say it's been a really fascinating insight into um how you develop tools for in essence people like me um and even though i've i guess i've known and followed, and followed the tool set for quite a while i've still learned a, a lot of new things in there as well so i hope other people have too um so yeah, I guess it just remains for me to say thank you very much for for your time, and um, and I hope we get to catch up again soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Twelve O Two, the Human Factors Podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at baz underscore k. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.